0: the final judgment, uh, which is a very uh, sobering uh, section of Scripture. Um, But just to give you a reminder, and maybe this will prompt some of those things in your mind, and I don't want to spend, we're going to set a time limit on it too so we can get through today, but maybe for about 20 minutes, if there are any questions. uh, We talked about the future binding of Satan, uh, that Satan will be bound for a thousand years in the abyss, in hell uh, with no influence on the earth, and during that thousand years, Satan binding to where he's not uh, deceiving the nations and things like that. Christ will reign on earth as king for a thousand years. Um, and we talked about uh, in verses four through six the millennial kingdom. We jumped back to the Old Testament, looked through the covenants, looked through Ezekiel, looked through Isaiah, uh, and we talked about different aspects of the millennial kingdom that the Bible spells out, but they're not in Revelation. There's just these three verses that talk about uh, the resurrection uh, of those who died during the uh, tribulation and um, and then them reigning with Christ during that time. At the end of the thousand years, it says that Satan is released from his prison. He immediately comes out, deceives the nations once again. Um, and then there's the final war at the the end of the millennial kingdom. Uh, and then uh, at the end of that war, Satan is cast into the lake of fire. Uh, everyone that is uh, has been deceived by him and followed him in this final rebellion is... Uh, burned, uh, incinerated by the fire of God that comes from heaven at that time, and then today we're going to talk about the final judgment, um, all unbelievers rising from the dead and facing uh, the judgment of God at the great white throne. Um, but all that being said, there was a, a couple of people had questions last week, and I thought, you know, part of it could just be a lack of clarity in the way I, I articulated it, and I definitely want to, anything like that, that I just wasn't clear about, I'd love to clarify. Um, Uh, you know, uh, this isn't really the time to dive into um, other uh, hermeneutical viewpoints and things like that, but just to get some clarity on where we're at. So as we move into the great white throne of judgment, some of the things are clear. And let me throw out an example, and I thought this might be good first. So last week when we talked about the final rebellion, it has to be people that are able to be deceived by Satan, right? And so these have to be people uh, that, that. Uh, are not sealed with the Spirit of God. These can't be believers losing their salvation. They can't be resurrected, glorified saints who are now eternally sanctified and glorified together with Christ. There, there's no, there's no uh, sin for them at that point. There's no deviating from that. And so the only answer, the best biblical answer, I guess I would say, would these have to be children that were born from those who walked into the millennial kingdom without dying, who had children after that, that would be born with the same sin natures as you and I would be, and would still need to be saved by grace through faith, even during the millennial kingdom time. And so there will be some that feign allegiance or don't believe during that time, even though it's a time of Christ being on earth and righteousness and justice and peace and things like that. Um, but they still need the, the same salvation as us. So um, the, the, so it couldn't, there is no possibility of those who have now bodily raised with Christ, are fully glorified together with Him, have returned with Him, tribulation saints that were raised with Him. All of those, they, those are immortal, eternal, solidified children of God that will never, ever be separated from Him. Does that make sense? It can't be that group. And so the best biblical answer, like I said, it must be those who have been born like us, but just in a whole different age that's very different than our age, but they still need to be saved by the same blood of Christ and by God's same grace through faith. Nothing changes there. And so, like I said, maybe I wasn't clear on that, but hopefully that helps answer that question. That was a question last week that I thought maybe I need to say that one out loud, but are there any other questions like that that might help you uh, as we're wrestling through some of this stuff and you're like, well, what about that? You know? And let me also preface that by saying there's many things we have no idea about. All we know is what is revealed in Revelation 20. Some of this stuff, this is the only place in the Bible that it talks about some of these things. And there's really not a lot of cross-referencing. There's other things that allude to it. Like we looked in Isaiah 25 last week. Uh, when it talks about you know um, uh, the, the kings of the earth and the angelic host being bound. And then after a period of time, there's judgment. But I mean, that's that's... Very vague, you know, um, but Revelation gives us some time factors on that. That's about it. So, so you know, I mean, there's definitely a lot of questions that the answer is, I have no idea. <laughs> and God has purposely chosen not to reveal that, and that's okay. But he's given us everything that we need to know. But like I said, there could be some things I'm just not clear on. Yeah? I, that, that's a really good question. So the answer is no, and but there's, there's good thoughts. Um, and, and a lot of the commentators I was reading were tackling that because that's a question that comes up. So if if a believer dies during the Millennial Kingdom, which some would say believers won't die during the Millennial Kingdom, you know, so I mean because it does say that there's long long life, and, and even in Isaiah when it refers to those who died 100, people assume something, that, you know, like there must have been a sin you know, for them to die at 100 years old because that's like, that's like a child dying. It doesn't seem like there's massive death like now during that time, because there's a time of peace, there's no war, there's probably a lack of disease with Christ reigning on earth, you know, so it's very good conditions, you know. So so if, the answer, I, I mean, the question is, if a believer dies during that time, what would happen? Um, and they, in some sense, would would have to rise from the dead, I would believe, and have a glorified body together with everyone else. I don't know if... You could, you could place that in two times. Either that happens immediately, because Christ is here and he's able to do that and does it. Uh, or that happens after, you know, when the, the new Jerusalem comes down, the new heavens, the new earth. Um, possibly then. Um, because there's something else we're going to have to wrestle through today, too. What happens to all the believers that are on earth when the earth ends and it seems like it's incinerated or whatever happens there, you know? So, um, so again, great question. The answer is nothing in the Bible that I know of clearly says this is what happens. But those are the only things I could think that that would happen um, to help at all. Very much, cool, <laughs> great question. Any other things like that? Yeah. Can you come the, number, sequence, and of the the number sequence and timing of all oh like the resurrections biblical resurrections. Yeah, yeah. Uh, off the top of my head, I wish. That, that would be a good one to to think through and to write out for sure. Um, but, you know, because when we talk about the first and second resurrection, we're using Revelation 20 language. And it's talking specifically about those who are raised, uh, you know, after Christ's return. And it, and it specifically talks about the, it's tribulation saints, you know. Um, and then the second resurrection is just unbelievers. And we're going to talk about that today. But you got resurrection of believers. They have to be united with body. I mean, Again, you got the rapture church. So think about that. Those who are raptured have to, in some way, be transformed instantaneously with glorified bodies. They return with Christ. You know, so um, you got those who were raised when Christ um, uh, died on the cross. And whether or not those people were raised and then died again, like Lazarus, or that was a you know, a foretaste of the resurrection, and they ascend bodily, they were raptured into heaven, and they're together with him now. The Bible's not clear on that, but there was definitely a resurrection there, and it was different than the Lazarus kind of resurrection. Um, You know, you got other things like Elijah, who was taken to heaven, and Enoch, who have to have glorified bodies. Um, And I guess, in some sense, you've got to say that's a piece of resurrection, you know, because they are uh, united with a, a glorified eternal body and soul, and they'll return with us. And then you got um, uh, the, the church has to those who have died in Christ or those who are alive in Christ at the rapture. There's a resurrection of the dead in Christ there. Um, so you know when we talk about the resurrection of believers, it's not like the one in Revelation 20. That's the only resurrection. There are there are stages, I guess you could say, of the first resurrection throughout history. Um, so that's like I said, off the top of my head, without you know being able to say, specific Bible references. That's the best I think I could answer that. But, yeah, if you want to call it that way, the first resurrection or the resurrection of believers, there, there, there's, you know, it all happens prior to the Millennial Kingdom. Um, so, in one sense, you could say that. But then there are different timings of individual resurrections or parts of believers' resurrections during during that time. It looks like all all unbelievers will rise outside of the Antichrist talking about that and him coming out of the abyss and things like that, all unbelievers will rise at the end of the millennial kingdom. That's the, it looks like from all we know biblically, one resurrection of unbelievers at one time for one purpose, which is judgment. Does that help? Okay. Good questions. Again, a lot of this stuff is, is kind of mind-blowing, really. I mean, especially when you start talking about conditions on earth and things that we just we have no ability to grab we don't live in that world you know um and and uh it's just some big stuff but you know the lord like i always think of what it talks about deuteronomy 29 29 you know the things that are revealed are are revealed for us they're meant for us to 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 understand there's a reason god revealed what he has revealed and then there is a reason that things are hidden that are hidden um, there's no need for us to know anything that has not been revealed by God. Um, and, and, and he knows that perfectly. So everything that is revealed in Scripture is intended for those who belong to him, to, to know him, to follow him, to to remain in him. I mean, and, and it's sufficient and perfect for all of that. Um, it's also sufficient and perfect for the judgment of those who reject it. And it's also sufficient and perfect uh, in what it lacks. And it lacks a lot. I mean, think about that. You know, I mean, we would be so insane to think, that a book this size could contain the, the breadth and depth and <laughs> understanding of God, you know? And at the same time, in his magnificent, you know, inscrutable wisdom, gave us every single thing we need in one volume, if you want to say it. And it's small. You can read it easily in a year. You know what I mean? Then it's everything that every saint in all of history needed to know uh, to come to him and to know him, to remain in him, and that 's amazing, you know so anything else all right well i 'm going we 're going to talk today about something that 'll probably <laughs> spark more questions, but like I said, I just wanted to make sure as we 're doing this, um, not only is it clear, but uh, I, my hope and prayer is that in all of this, this is becoming. Uh, it's providing clarity that leads to, uh, uh, you know, um, holiness in our own lives. Uh, uh, it's like all this stuff should be both a point of rejoicing. I mean, we're, we're seeing the end of evil. This is wonderful. You know, we're seeing the end of Satan. We're seeing the end of death. We're seeing the end of all the things, you know, the, the fight with sin, all of that. I mean, there's a day coming when there will be perfect rest, you know? Uh, for, for us now, I mean, that will be at the rapture. That will be, at, you know, when we are caught up in the air with the Christ and the clouds, all that. Um, but for all of creation, you know, there will be a final day where sin will cease to exist, where Satan will cease to exist. Not that he'll be annihilated, but that he will be cast into the eternal lake of fire forever, where death will cease to exist, where Hades will cease to exist, where there will be no more sorrow, no more death, no more suffering, no more pain. Sin will be done. And that is something we all long for. Even unbelievers long for that, but then run into it. Does that make sense? There is a longing, even in the dead, for the things that they fight through to be done, you know? Uh, but rather than turning to the one solution, the one thing that we have for salvation, uh, they reject Christ and they continue deeper and deeper and deeper into death. Um, and so, uh, But all that being said, for those who belong to Christ, God has not only prescribed this in his word, but he's already done the work and he's just going to return and finish the work that he began at the cross. And all this is pre-ordained pre, um, by him. Uh, It's all set in stone, you know, and I used to tell my college kids or my youth all the time, you know, anytime we talk about future stuff, you have to think of it, you know, because from our perspective in time, we always think the history is set in stone, but the future is wide open or whatever, you know, that we kind of think like that, but it's not, it's, it's everything is set in stone. Future From from the very beginning to the very end, it, it's all perfectly orchestrated. Every little blade of grass plays into the, this whole thing, and God is in control of all of that. And so, again, we're just blessed to know the, the author, the creator, and the, the sustainer of all things. And what we're doing is we're trying to open his word and, and, and see what has he said, uh, both about what has happened, what is happening, uh, who, uh, who he is, and then what will happen. But again, not not just for the purpose of being, you know, we're not like a bunch of, want to be uh, uh, palm readers and, you know, telling the future sort of thing. I mean, we, the, the desire here is we want to glorify him. We want to follow him. These things ought to have implications on your life that causes you to sober up the way that you are working, the way that you are treating your wife or your husband, the way that you are raising your family, the way that you're living for Christ. And that's always the purpose. So I just also want to do that because um, eschatology can easily be one of those things that you can you can just be fascinated by and almost hide in and like in, and have this deep understanding of what the Bible says about the end times, but in the current times you're living in a way that is is not pleasing to the Lord. So we never want to do that. These things should for all of us. We ought to walk out of here today for sure. After talking about the final judgment, going, I want to I want to live different and I need to live for Christ. And we got to get this stuff out of our life that would ever 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 cause any reproach to his name. Does that make sense? So that's, that's our purpose, and I just want to say that before we begin. But you can open your Bibles to Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Six verses today, um, And uh, but these are some big verses. And as you're doing that, I know I already kind of did this real quick, but this is coming uh, from, uh, this is what we've looked at. We've looked at the future binding of Satan before the Millennial Kingdom, at the end of, uh, after um, Armageddon. Uh, we looked at the Millennial Kingdom. We spent a few weeks doing that. Last week we talked about the future release, the eternal judgment of Satan uh, into the eternal lake of fire. And today we're going to be talking Revelation 20, 11 through 15, uh, the final judgment. So let's read together, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Let's just read the whole chapter. It's not very long, and I think it'll help us just get our mind to the game, especially people that, that haven't been here. So Revelation 20, starting in verse 1, <clears throat> it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, and he shut it and sealed it over him, so that, purpose statement, he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their, uh, on their forehead uh, and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand on the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the, uh, and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. Where the beast and the false prophet are also. And then they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And here's our verses for today. And then I saw a great white throne. And him who sat upon it. From whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds." And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I need to pray before we begin this. Father, these are terrifying and sobering words. There may be no other piece of scripture more sobering and terrifying than these words. Father, we know that in you and and through the blood of Christ that we have eternal life. But any of us in you know that this is what we deserve. And every one of us in here know people that will stand at this judgment and that causes us to be terrified. So we just pray, give us strength as we study. Help us to be fervent in prayer for our friends and our family. Let us never be so calloused to read these words and to move on like it's just another theological thing to understand. And we just thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your love. And we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm sorry, guys. (laughs) You know, as I was studying, I knew this was going to be hard to preach, but I didn't realize how hard. These are some very... uh, Heavy passages. With them comes amazing joy. Like I said, after this is, is only joy. And, uh, and for any of us who truly belong to him, even being here, we know that there's joy even in the judgment of God because all that he does is perfect and all that he does is holy and pure and good. I think what's hard is we're we're not there yet. We live in a sinful time, and we know many people that will be a part of this, and that's hard. It's it's easy sometimes, or not easy. You just you 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 get you get into life and into the normal normality norm, normality whatever you say of uh, of of just unbelievers around you. And sometimes we just forget this is it. This is their last day. And, this is all, and, and, and there's names to, to all these souls, and we know many of them. Uh, and I think that's always what, like I said, causes this to be really, really hard. But, but like I said, in Christ, though, this is, this, is, this is our salvation. This is the end of sin. This is the end of Satan. This is the end of, of all evil and all the enemies of God. And, and there's joy in, in, in the salvation that comes, but this is, these are heavy things. So... What we're going to look at today is that we're going to divide into three parts. We're going to look at what the great white throne is, this great white throne that's talked about here. Secondly, we're going to look at the resurrection of all unbelievers, and then last, the final and the eternal judgment in the last two verses. So, in verse twenty, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter twenty, verse eleven, uh, he says, "Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them." I think the first thing to point out here, and and we've talked about this throughout Revelation 19 and 20, throughout all of Revelation, I know I went in here with you for a lot of this, but was this uh, chi Adon thing that's repeated over and over and over in the Greek, and it it gives you time markers, and it shows you the chronology of what happens here at the end. And we've been following this all throughout 19 and 20 to show you the different pieces that, that come in this chronological, ordered uh, time frame of the return of Christ all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. And each of the sections are, begin with, then I saw, or and I saw, in the English. Uh, the first thing John says is he sees the return of Christ. And I think I told you when we were looking at this, it's almost like God's giving him these visions of this will happen, and then this will happen, and I just imagine it, like John sees this, and then he looks over here, and then he sees this. However, the, the Lord unveiled this to John, but this, this is the chronological sequence of what happens at the end. So Christ returns, and then he saw an angel basically calling all the birds to come to feast on the the bodies of all those slain at Armageddon. Uh, Then he saw the armies gathered together for Armageddon. Then he said, I saw an angel coming to bind Satan in the abyss at the beginning. Then he saw the thousand-year kingdom of Christ. And here we have two uh, of these. Then I saw the great white throne of judgment. And then I saw all sinners judged by God. Uh, in verses 12 through 15. And then, like I said, the last one here will be in 21, 1 through 8. And then he sees a new heavens and a new earth. Which is going to be wonderful to talk about. But today, uh, we're talking about the judgment. And it starts with one of these chi Adons again. Um, just showing the chronological progression of events. The change of scenery, if you want to say it that way. This is the new thing uh, that, that the Lord opens John's eyes to see about the end. And he says he sees a great white throne. Uh, great, the, the, it's the the word we get our word mega from. It just means it means big. It means great. It also can mean uh, uh, just the, the great in authority, great in size, but also great in authority and great in who uh, whose throne it is. And when it talks about it being white, again, I just think that's just showing the, the purity, the radiance. Definitely, I mean, the word there means bright or radiant, but it's also the same word used to describe the whiteness of the clothing of the saints and that sort of stuff. Talking about the purity. Um, is the whiteness of the hair of Christ? So it's 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 the it's the 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 powerful, huge, full authority, pure, holy throne of God. This is the throne of God. And in Revelation, we've seen many thrones. Uh, Forty-seven times in Revelation, thrones are mentioned. You have specifically uh, the throne of Christ mentioned. You have the thrones that the elders and the saints uh, sit on and rule together with Christ. But there's one throne that stands out throughout Revelation, uh, and it stands out here, and this is God the Father's throne. Now, I don't know if you need to differentiate. We're going to talk about this in a second, um, because the Father and the Son share judgment. That's clear throughout Scripture, Uh, and and we're not going to get down to, is this just the Father's throne, or is this the throne of Christ and the Father and all that? I mean, the Scriptures aren't explicit enough to, to just say, this is what it is, but this is the throne of God, and this is the Father's throne for sure. Uh, if you look in Revelation, you see Christ in the middle of the throne. You see Christ at the throne. You see Christ coming out from the throne of God. Uh, so, obviously, you know, there, there's one God. I think what makes it hard for us is this Trinity understanding of there's one God, but then you've got Christ who is God, and the Spirit who is God, and the Father who is God. And you have God judging here, but Christ judges, and the Father also judges. So who's doing the judging? The simple answer is God. This is the throne of God, and this is the judgment of God. The perfect, pure, holy, righteous judgment of God finally poured out on sin once for all at the very end. Uh, but it is true that the Father and the Son share in judgment. It's good to understand that uh, very clearly in Scripture. Jesus Christ will be the final judge. Authority has been given to Christ to judge. Uh, but the Father also very clearly judges in Scripture. I want to throw these up here just to show you what I was talking about. in John 5.22 Christ himself says, not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. I think that has to have to do with this as well. In John 5, 26-27, Christ also says, just as the Father has life in himself, even so he, is gave, uh, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So part of the role of Christ is both the author of life, the bestower of life, and the one who judges and has the authority given to him by the Father to judge. So when we talk about this judgment at the end, to to think of it as the judgment of Christ on unbelievers is correct. To think of it as the Father judging unbelievers is correct. And I 'm not smart enough, nor do I think the Bible says clearly enough that you can say it 's only the Father here and not the, the Son, and I don 't even know if that really even matters, but you know this: God is judging here at the very end. Acts 1042 this is the one who has been appointed by God, speaking of Christ as the judge of the living and the dead, and that 's what we 're talking about today. Second Timothy 4:1 Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, who is the judge uh, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. So, again, Scripture is clear that Christ will judge. Uh, and we've talked about that before, too. The, um, you know, the, the, the wrong assumption that the God of the Old Testament is the God of wrath and judgment, and the God of the New Testament is Jesus, who is loving and gracious. There's one God. He's always been the same. He never changed. It's the same God in Genesis, which is in Malachi, which is in Revelation. Um, and Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he is God. So, uh, when we talk about this throne, though, this is the throne of God. Um, it is great. It is radiant. It is bright. It is holy. It is pure. And the one who judges um, and sits upon this throne is also all of those things. And it says, and, and he who sat upon it, um, and again, if you look at the terminology in Revelations, the one sitting upon this throne, when we look at this throne, is always God. It's God the Father in Revelation 4. We've seen this throne before. In Revelation 4, it says, John says, Immediately I was in the spirit. Behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 elders, upon, upon, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning sounds and peals of thunder. There were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And Before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. In the center and around the throne, the four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And then in Revelation 5, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book. This is, the, this is the, 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 the judgments of Revelation written inside on the back, sealed um, up with seven seals. And, and then Christ, I fast-forwarded here, comes out and takes the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And Christ is the one that opens the seals, and that's where all the judgments begin uh, in Revelation 6. And so, all that being said, and I didn't write down all the different throne uh, references in Revelation but this throne is where God is sitting. And out from this throne come judgments of God. And out from this throne come those who do the, 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 the work of God, the angels that do the work of God. It's from this throne that Christ comes, and by this throne that he sits. And, and in this throne, it says uh, that, that Christ is. And so, like I said, I, I don't know if you can differentiate between here's Christ's throne and here's God's throne. Uh, but this is the throne of God. And this is where things happen in Revelation. And, and every time this throne is proclaimed, it's this, this kind of setting. Uh, the only time that it changes is right before Armageddon, or I don't know if you remember that, where the, the fire, the, there, there's fire in this sea that is before the throne. And it looks like the wrath of God the, is, is just being kindled, ready to be poured out in the battle of Armageddon. Uh, and here, we're at the great white throne again. Uh, and it's the, the difference between this in Revelation 4 and this in Revelation 20 it is now at this throne, heaven and earth have fled away. And it's a terrifying scene before the throne of God for all unbelievers. Daniel 7, 9 through 10, talks about this day of judgment and about the, the throne. This is one of the only uh, few, let me say it that way, Old Testament passages that talk about this. He says, Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And his vesture was like white snow, and the hair on his head was pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire, and a river of fire was flowing. That's never, ever good when God's throne is ablaze with fire. Uh, and it says, And coming out from before him, thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him, and the courts sat, and books were open." And that's what we're going to talk about today. But this is the, the biblical picture of the final day of judgment before the great white throne of God, and these are some amazing verses that are hard to explain outside of a, a couple of references. But it says, at, in this scene, at this throne, the throne of God, it says, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. The words mean, the, the, at, the, at the face or the appearance or the presence of God at this moment, that heaven and earth flee, they escape, they disappear, they vanish Again, there's not. That, it's hard to explain what that means. The the best biblical references that I think to explain that um, would be Revelation 21 verse one, and Second Peter three ten through thirteen. Basically, I think you can summarize it by saying it is the end of the current order of things, the way things are now, the way things exist to be right now, the way the earth looks, the way the heavens are. Uh, they they cease to exist. But they can't be, I believe, incinerated or annihilated to where they no longer exist at all. Now I could be wrong on that, but here's what here's what the Bible says uh, in in Revelation twenty one. Right after these verses, it says, "I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The old is gone." It says, "For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, so they're gone." There is no longer uh, any sea in it. We'll talk more about that soon. Second Peter 3 talks about this day. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. What sort of people ought you to be? This is good. This is Peter pulling it home in holy conduct and godliness looking for the hastening of the coming of the day of God. Because of uh, which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Alright, So, so anyway, that, that's the answer. What this means that, that they they fled or they disappeared or they vanished? It's this uh, that they, they 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 were burned with intense heat. Uh, the earth is destroyed. Again. Let me let me let me throw up a couple of quotes too, real quick, to talk about this. John MacArthur in his commentary, he calls it the uncreation before the new creation. Uh, he calls it an absolute reverse of creation. Um, he says it didn't take eons of evolution to create the universe, nor will it take eons to uncreate it. the uncreation of the universe. Like its creation, will take place by the word of God. So there is there is in some sense, uh, uh, you know, like I said, the, the the old is gone. It's it's incinerated or it's done. Henry Morris, in his commentary, and I thought this was a good quote, says, this should not be understood as an actual annihilation of the earth and its atmosphere. And I think there's reasons to say that. Um, the, the age-long effects of God's great curse on the ground must be purged from every element uh, before the earth can be renewed uh, for its eternal purposes. The great beds of fossils uh, and other testimonials of an age-long reign of sin and death must all be burned away. I didn't think about that, but that's a really good point. You know, any trace of the remnants or effects of sin that have ever occurred in this planet, including the stars and the moon and everything else, all things must be made right and perfect and new again, uh, just like the first creation before the effects of sin. Remember, sin affects everything. It's not just you and me. I mean, sin affects everything. It affects it affects the 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 the, the animals. and affects the. I mean, again, you know, I, we just went out west and saw all the different rock layers that the flood laid down and the fossils that are all. The, I mean, all that has to be gone. Because that, that is, those are remnants of, of sin and death and the effects of sin on this earth. Our planet, as beautiful and wonderful as it is, is just the leftover destruction from the flood when God destroyed the earth the first time because of sin. It's because of sin. So, yeah, we see beauty in it. But this is, this is if you want to say it, the trash heap left over from the first thing that he created, which was Unbelievable. Uh, but even that was affected by sin. I mean, only Adam and Eve saw it without any trace of sin for a very short period of time. And the new has to be that. The new has to be completely sinless, untraceable, unthinkable, no remembrance of the things that were formerly uh, in the past, you know. So, again, whatever that means. But then you've got Romans where it talks about creation longing for the day that will be released for its suffering and those sort of things. And, and it's hard for me to swallow that a complete annihilation, an incineration where there is nothing and then there's something, it just seems like part of how God redeems things is he, think about us. We're not annihilated, but we do pass away, we do die, but we're, we're, we're then glorified, sanctified, and transformed into a new creation, a new person with a new body and a soul that is perfect and pure, and we will forever be with him, right? Right? And in some way, to me, it seems like that's how God redeems and creates. He doesn't incinerate, annihilate, and then, and then there's a, a new Brian, right? Uh, but at the same time, he does. That's exactly what he does. But there's still me. But, and so I think in the same, same way, and this is just me, if you disagree, that's totally fine. But in some way, he must, through fire and through this, what Peter says and, and, and what he says here in, in Revelation, He's got to renew the created order, and he must make it new, a new heavens and a new earth with zero trace of sin or the remembrance of sin. He has to do that, um, and so uh, I'll, I'll just let I don't know, I can't answer that one, and I'll let, you, you figure it out, but those are the two best verses that I think you can go to. Yeah, but it is a new creation, for sure. And there is an annihilation, or an incineration. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to be careful with the words. And, uh, and there's definitely a burning, uh, and, and they're vanished. They're gone. You know, it's like, it's got to be all. Like, I, I don't know. I don't really know how to explain that. They're gone. They escape. They flee. They're vanished. They're burned. They're incinerated with intense heat. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're destroyed. Um, and then they're new and sinless. Um, and that's just part of what God does. Henry Morris goes on to say, um, it, but that is a good word, I think, like transformation, new creation. I mean, just like us. It is through uh, it is as though sin, the sin-cursed earth quails, did I put it back up there? Before the advancing glory cloud of the divine fire and runs away, despairing in a great explosion of light and sound and fervent heat. That's his way uh, of, of trying to describe what the Bible says about this time. But here's the thing. Ultimately, in the end, at the very end, they're gone. And all unbelievers will stand before the throne of God. And what that looks like, I have no idea. But it's just, there's one focus. It's him and it's them and that's it. And it's only for him to pour out his judgment on them. And that is a terrifying thing. It says, and no place was found for them. Again, I mean, I don't, You, know, I, I've already told you the best way I can explain that through scripture but I tell you this: there is only one focus for every unbeliever at that moment, and it is the throne of God and Christ, and it is ablaze with His glory and His fire. Um, heaven and earth, um, one one person said, are not permitted to witness the scene. Um, MacArthur says later in one of his uh, in his commentary, the setting is uh, the indescribable void, the inconceivable nothingness between the end of the present universe and the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. Again, I think what you see is just many men of God who know the scripture wrestling with how do you articulate this outside. I mean, just, you just read it, but then when you try to go, what does that look like? No one can really explain what this looks like outside of what it says. But heaven and earth will flee. There's an incineration. There's a done, the old created order is done away with. There's a throne. God is on it. Judgment is about to be unleashed in full fury on all unbelievers, and it's just them and him, and that's it. And so my brain just thinks of a white sheet of paper and them and him. I don't know. That's all I can think. Uh, Hebrews talks about it this way, and I think this is a good way to think about it. This time about the word of God, living and active, sharpening a two-edged sword. It pierces division of soul, spirit, joints, and marrow. We talk about this all the time. It, no, I mean, the, the Lord does this all the time with his word. It dissects my heart. It, op- it convicts me. It opens me up and lays bare all the motives and everything else. But there will be a laying bare of all people at the very end. It says, there is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, as a believer, we're thankful for that. He's always, like I said, dissecting us, sanctifying us, revealing to us the things that are not pleasing to Him, causing us to follow Him. But there will be a terrifying laying bare of of all people. I mean, we couldn't have had a better sermon as a a precursor for this. I mean, Shane just talked about it. There is a day of accountability. There is a day of judgment uh, that awaits that there's nothing hidden from His eyes. All things will be revealed. And so this is that day. So, that's the great white throne. So here, let's talk about the the uh, the resurrection of all unbelievers. The resurrection of all unbelievers. Uh, verses 12-13, through 13, it says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small. So this is the next, then I saw, uh, Kai Adon. It says, uh, standing before the throne, the books were open. Another book was opened, the book of life. The dead were judged from the things written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in them. Death and Hades gave up the dead. Uh, which were in them, and they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. So uh, it's not—I mean, it's pretty clear what's happening here. It's—it's it's pretty simple in what it says. But let's look at some of the things that are said here. Like I said, I think it's like uh, John. The first thing is—you know—then I saw, and it's just the throne. It's just God, and everything else is gone. It's just Him. And then His eyes are re- what what the Lord reveals to His eyes are all those who have died apart from Christ being physically and spiritually resurrected and alive at this point, and they stand before the throne. So this is all of the dead that have died in all of history, that have died apart from the salvific work that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Those prior to the cross looking forward to the one who would come, who would free them from sin. Those who have died since the cross looking back at the cross. But all people are saved by God's grace because there is none good, not one. All people are saved by faith, by believing in what God has told them. That even before Moses started writing it down, they were still saved by grace through faith. The Israelites, saved by grace through faith. The church, saved by grace through faith. Tribulation saints, saved by grace through faith. Millennial kingdom saints, saved by grace through faith. There's no other way. And all of it only possible through the blood of Jesus Christ. These are those who rejected that. These are those who stand on their own. Uh, and it says, I saw the dead, plural, this is all those. These are the ones standing, like when Daniel talked in Daniel uh, twelve or uh, 7, uh, 9 through 10, the, the myriads and myriads and myriads multitudes standing before the throne of judgment. There's many, many here. Um, this was alluded to back in Revelation 20. We saw this in verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years are completed. Here, the thousand years have been completed. Uh, Satan has been judged, and now they've all come back to life. And they're standing before the throne. Uh, Jesus, again in John 5, when we're talking about all that judgment stuff that we just referred to, the son having the power and the ability or the authority to to judge, he actually says this in the same context. He says, Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and they will come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So Christ said this when he was on earth with us. And here we're spelling, you know, we've seen the the thousand years in the middle, the resurrection of those who believe in him, those who belong to him, and then the resurrection of those who are apart from him. It says the great and the small uh, were standing uh, before him. It's just a way of saying everybody, the significant and the insignificant, the powerful and the powerless, the kings, the slaves, the rich, the poor, earthly status at this point is completely insignificant and unimportant and worthless in the judgment. All will stand before him completely the same, if you want to say that. Sinners that are about to receive the judgment uh, that, that we deserve, uh, that all sinners deserve because of their their sin, and they're standing before the throne. Um, they're standing there. it means to be placed there. They've been, they've, they've been stood there or placed there by God for their sentencing. If you want to say it that way, it's kind of how you know. I believe in court still, right? When uh, when when um, uh, the uh, the criminal uh, receives their sentencing, they usually stand and they get their sentence and. I don't know if that's just a, a, a reflection of biblical things, you know, and something we've just done uh, historically because of what the Bible says, but it's the same thing here. Here they're standing, um, all sinners in the history of creation, uh, and they're about to receive their sentence from the judge, uh, and this is a, an eternal judgment. And then it says this, and this is something I don't think we need to get caught up on, but it's it's difference is the sea gave up the dead which were in it. So the sea offers up its dead. Death gave up the dead that belonged to death. And Hades gave up the dead which were in them. So the sea, death, and Hades all offer up their dead. I think this is just a way to say all the dead of all time, no matter where they died or how they died, all the dead are given up. That's the, the simplicity of it. All the dead are standing before the throne. Um, you know, uh, some of the commentators I was reading were getting into uh, you know, just how, um, just Past beliefs of people lost at sea and where their souls were, where the, you know their bodies are, and all that, but again, the point being is no matter where you die, if you if you were burned, if you were dead in the sea, if you were buried, no matter where you are, here, the bodies of all the dead and the souls of all the dead are standing uh, with with new bodies that are able to endure the eternal judgment of God before the throne um, and uh, yeah, uh, Robert Thomas, in his commentary. Basically just says, these are the unrighteous dead from all the ages, uh, whose resurrection is a part of the universal and Jewish and Christian belief. Daniel 12 talks about this even uh, from the Old Testament. Uh, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So, um, it's not just a New Testament concept that the dead will rise. Uh, This has always been a biblical concept. That both believers and unbelievers will rise from the dead. And all, either you'll rise to the dead uh, to be given eternal life together with Christ, or you will rise from the dead to be given eternal judgment um, uh, according to the judgment of Christ. Um, and so uh, death, Hades, uh, just a, an understanding of Hades very quickly, uh, mentioned 10 times in the New Testament, 67 times in the Old Testament, always just means a place of the dead. Sometimes it's used to describe hell, uh, but sometimes it's used to describe uh, just what happens after you die. Um, and so, uh, like I said, sometimes there's no distinction. Sometimes there's an equivalent uh, to one or the other. In Matthew eleven twenty three, Luke ten fifteen, uh, Capernaum, it, it says that they will descend into uh, Sheol. They'll be judged, and it's talking about judgment. So, in that sense, Hades is is not um, uh, or into Hades. Uh, Hades is not just dead. It's talking about judgment. In Luke sixteen, again, the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, you know, the, the rich man is in Hades, uh, and he's, he's being tormented. He's burning. He's longing for a, a drip of water on his tongue, and he wants someone to go tell his brothers never to come here, you know. So, again, Hades there is, is showing judgment. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, in Acts two twenty seven through 31, it talks about the soul of Christ not being abounded by God to Hades. Uh, in other words, you know, Christ is, is it's a wrong belief. I, don't, I can't remember if it's Catholic or who thinks that Christ went and suffered in hell, but that didn't happen biblically. Um, he didn't abandon his soul to Hades, and God didn't do that. Christ visiting hell was only to make proclamation to the spirits that were now in prison that he has victory over them on the cross. Basically, the job is done. So all that being said, um, I, again, it's just basically a way, see uh, uh, death and Hades, all the dead from all times are now standing before the throne of God. Um, and uh, this was a good quote, too. Again, Robert Thomas and his uh, uh, commentary said, according to its etymology, Hades is the unseen world where all who die reside. It includes both paradise, Luke 23, and Gehenna, Luke 12, 5, Abraham's bosom, and a state of torment and anguish uh, in Luke. So in Luke, it uses the word Hades to describe both good and bad, you know. Uh, this present, the present instance involves only the latter, because the resurrection of the righteous dead has already occurred. So, again, when you go look at the Old Testament, you'll see many times they, uh, they went to Sheol, but we're talking about Believers so again, Sheol or Hades. Sheol is the Old Testament equivalent to Hades. Does not necessarily mean hell, but it can be equivalent to hell. Uh, but it's just where the dead go. Does that make sense? That's the simplicity of it. Uh, the idea Matt Waymire says in his uh, in his um, uh, you know, I, I think I've showed you that book before. So he a tiny little book on Revelation twenty uh, that's just real to the point and clear, easy to understand. He says, the idea is that the sea, the grave, and death itself all release the dead bodies that they held captive, and the bodies are raised to stand before the judge on the great white throne. And so, like I said, I don't think we need to get caught up into what is the sea, what's the difference between the sea and death, what's the difference between death and Hades, what is Hades? It's just, here's all the dead before the throne of God. Let's stay focused on what's going on. And this is the point. It says, and books were open, and another book was open. So you got books, and you got another book. You got plural books, and then you got a singular, very focused on one book. Um, let's look at the, the book, all right? So books, plural, were open, and it says another book was opened. This another book uh, is a singular book, and this, it, it describes it as, which is the book of life? So what is the book of life? The book of life is the book where the names of all of those who have been washed clean by the blood of Christ and belong to God are written in a book, and their names are in that. Anyone's name who is in that book can never be separated from God, belongs to God. And he's known their names before the foundation of the world. They're written in that. Here's just a few references um, from the Bible about the book of life, Philippians four three, Paul talks about it. He says, those who struggle in the cause of the gospel. It's at the ending of his, uh, of his epistle, and he's just talking about all those who are fighting the fight together with him. And then he says, these are those whose name are in the book of life. So talking about current Christians, those who belong to God. Revelation three five. Talking about those who overcome at the very end, who who persevere to the end with Christ, uh, Christ says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Um, so, by the way, obviously your name can be erased, but you cannot lose your salvation. So what the erasing of the name means is possibly just that that's just part of God's judgment that the name is gone your name is there's a blank spot where your name would have been does that make sense uh, but don't look at this and go oh you can lose your salvation there is no losing salvation that there's, there's, there's biblically that concept doesn't exist you can't be preordained foreordained before the foundation of the world name written in His book before the foundation of the world if you want to say it that way uh, you'd be sealed with the Holy Spirit of God all those things washed clean by the blood of Christ and then all that reversed that doesn't make sense uh, I think this is just a way to articulate that the name is not there, and it's gone, which is terrifying as part of his judgment. Revelation 13, 18, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Speaking of the Antichrist, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb. So, again, marry that together in your theology. It can be erased, but it was there before the foundation of the world. So, again, it's just part of of his way of articulating whether or not your name's in the book. Revelation 17, 8, those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. uh, Those are all unbelievers. Revelation 20, 15, we're going to get this at the very end. Anyone's name is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. In Revelation 21, 7, or 27, nothing unclean. This is talking of the new heavens, the new earth. No one who practices abomination, lying shall ever come into uh, his kingdom, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the book of life, is all those who belong to God, to belong to Christ, have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. And basically, this book is open in the judgment as as almost like another book to show none of their names are in here. They are negatively, you got the books of deeds, the books that are open according to their deeds. This is all that you are. And let's just check the book of life. Your name is not in the book of life. It has been erased from the book of life. There's a blank spot where your name should have been in the book of life, if you want to just articulate it that way. So the book of life is the book that has the names of all the children of God. The other books, plural, uh, it says, um, uh, the books were opened, the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. So I think the best biblical answer, what are in these books? Everything. Every thought, every word, every deed, everything. Everything about every person's life ever, every transgression, everything that was not fully to the glory and the honor, submission to God, love of others, love of God, everything. Fully laid bare, fully exposed, fully open, the motives, the intentions, everything. All of it is in these books. This is the dead were judged, this is the passing of judgment, it's only condemnation. This is different then, then other judgments in the Bible, the judgment seat of Christ, talking about believers. It's not a judgment of the sheep and the goats where some are pardoned and some are not. This is only a judgment of condemnation. This is the final judgment. Um, and there are no non-guilty verdicts. And it says uh, the things in the books according to their deeds. If you look biblically, God's judgment is always based on deeds. It's always based on our works. Salvation is always by grace through faith. And then works follow that. Works that He ordained before the foundation of the world for us to walk in them. Works that He accomplishes through us and then rewards us for. Works that are a blessing for us. But the works don't merit you anything. The works are evidence that the Spirit is working in you. Does that make sense? Salvation is by grace through faith, and works follow that. Condemnation is always by works. So if you're trying to work your way to heaven, you're working your way deeper into hell every single time. Does that make sense? Every religious and self-righteous deed only makes hell hotter for the religious person. It is only by God's grace that we can be saved. Every thought, every word, every deed with perfect accuracy according to a perfectly holy standard. Think about that. Think about the standard that God holds. Any and everything, not to His glory. Any and everything, not completely for a love of God and a love of others. Everything. That is anything but holy is all written in these books. And all mankind that have rejected Christ will be judged according to their deeds. That's a terrifying thing. Uh, It's it's, it's a terrifying thing to think about this. And again, we we have many other passages that talk about this judgment. Luke 8, 17. This is uh, um, equivalent to what Shane was talking about today. But in Luke, nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Everything is known. And I don't know, you know, some commentators say that this will be displayed to all the universe so all people see the justice of God and that every person that will be condemned will know for certain that God is just and there is no unrighteous judgment. I don't know. But we know God knows all things. And here it may be that all creation knows all things and all things are revealed so that the greatness and holiness of God is, is clearly seen for all creation. And the heinous wickedness of each individual person's sin is so clear that no one has any doubt that his judgment was absolutely perfect. But no matter what, nothing is hidden, and there are no secrets at this point. Ecclesiastes 12.14 talks about this. God will bring every act into judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. God knows. Second Corinthians 11.14-15, "...even Satan disguises himself as the angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising his servants disguise themselves as the servants of righteousness." Self-righteousness is everywhere. Servants of Satan are filling pulpits all over the place. Many people that we think are holy and religious are, are just, just children of Satan that are some of the most wicked people on the planet. And he says, but their end will be according to their deeds. This is the day that there are no more false prophets, false teachers, false believers. This is the day where it's very clear where you belong. This is the day of judgment. Like I said, I mean, as a, as a believer... These words are sobering and they, they, they wake you up to go, we, we must eliminate all traces of hypocrisy. We must eliminate all traces of this. I want to be so far from this and so far from anything that would be associated with this. You know what I mean? But at the same time, there's also that comfort and joy in that there is no more deception after this point. Deception cannot exist. There's, there, it, it doesn't make sense after this because all that will be done away. Um, Again, Matthew Wehmeyer in his book says, The books plural and the books singular serve as a dual witness against the unbelievers. Not only have they committed innumerable acts of wickedness before the Lord, but they've also refused to take refuge in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the main thing. They've refused Christ. And now they stand on their works, not knowing. They're the first, you know, I I remember reading somewhere where it talks about Satan being the, the ultimate deceiver, but he's also the first to be deceived. And it's the same thing with any unbeliever. We deceive ourselves into thinking that it's not going to be like this or this won't happen. Or yeah, it'll happen, but I'll still be fine because of whatever it is that I've done or I've thought or I... You know what I mean? But but the, the word leaves no room for any of that. It's Christ or it's judgment. It's it's, it's like Shane said, denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Him or it's standing before Him and, and being paid what our sin warrants. And, and that's a terrifying... Thing. Romans two talks about that. this is this is a a, a good New Testament uh, equivalent for us to understand here right right now uh, even as we try to excuse our sin or we pass judgment on others as we ourselves are doing the same thing in Romans two basically Paul's building everyone up to this point where all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God where where there's none righteous not one and they need Christ but here he says and he says you have no excuse every one of you who passes judgment for in that which you judge another you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things and we know look at this that the judgment of god rightly falls upon those who practice such things but do you suppose this oh man when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and you do the same yourself that you'll escape this what we're talking about the judgment of god or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience not knowing that the kindness of god leads to repentance leads you to repentance but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath in revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In other words, he's calling out hypocrites. Those who stand in judgment on others and practice the same things, you're, you're, you're making it worse for you on this day when you judge your brother and you're practicing the very same thing. In other words, you should be looking at the kindness of God, being like, I deserve the judgment of God. I don't deserve what I have. And it's so wonderful that his grace that is, his, his, he's given to me. He said, who will render to each person according to his deeds? Again, there it is. To those who, by perseverance and doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Uh, he goes on. to to talk about there being no uh, partiality with God, there will be wrath, tribulation, distress, uh, that only the doers of the the law will be justified, and on that day when God judges the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. I just kind of fast forward because I saw the clock. But but basically, uh, here's another Christ judging, but he's going to judge the secrets of man. In the end, there will be no self-righteousness. There will be no um, uh, 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 hypocrites or anything like that. So, now again, just as a, a, a quick reminder, it is Christ who is judged according to our deeds so that we would be spared this judgment at the end, which is the greatest news ever. And this is what we have to tell, not only, you know, I mean, you need to hear this and I need to hear this, but our friends as well. That this is what Christ, if you want to say it that way, paid for us. John three seventeen through 18, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Uh, he who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe in Him has been judged already. So again, that is our salvation. That Christ paid what we should stand before the throne on the eternal day of judgment and pay. Christ paid that for us ahead of time on the cross. God poured His wrath out on His Son instead of us so that we can have eternal life. That is the good news. That is the gospel. In 1 Peter one seventeen through 17-19, he says, If you address as Father, look at this, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, So that's that's the that's who we're calling our father. You know, it's so easy for us to say, God, our father, you know, but if you think about who you're calling father, the judge who impartially judges according to deeds of which we should receive his fury and wrath on this day. Does that make sense? That's who we call father. He says, So if you call him father, he says, then conduct yourselves in fear during your time to stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed by perishable things. He is our Father. He's a loving Father, a gracious Father. But we, weren't, we didn't merit His favor. We didn't merit His grace. He says, we were bought, right? It wasn't silver, gold, or feudal way of life that inherited from our forefathers. He says, you were bought with precious blood, as of the Lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So for any Christian, we read about this day of judgment It should cause, you know, shivers to go up your spine as you think of what's going to happen. And it should cause you to fall on your face before the Lord and say, thank you for sending your son who bought me with his precious blood. I deserve all of that. And he has bought me and redeemed me and filled me with your spirit. I can now call you father and not be terrified of your judgment, but be thankful for your grace because you poured that judgment out on your son for me in my place. That, that is the gospel. It's this day of judgment that makes the gospel so sweet and so good because all of us should be there. But we can all be spared and we can all be forgiven and we can all be redeemed by the blood of Christ, but only by his blood. Nothing else. Everything else will land you on this day of judgment except the blood of Christ. I lost my battery. So let's, the final point is this, the final and eternal judgment. Look in your Bibles. Verse 14 and 15, it says, And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, this one, this is not long. Death and Hades... Uh, or will no longer exist. There's no need for them. There's no, there's no wages of sin because there's no more sin, so there's no more death. Death is done. Death is thrown into the lake of fire. Death ceases to be. Hades, the place of the dead. There's no more dead. There's no more need for a place of the dead. Hell is tossed in the lake of fire. Hades is tossed into the lake of fire. There is no more place of the dead because there are no more dead. After this point, there's only the living Those who live forever. Those who live with Christ. Those who are sinless, perfect, glorified, redeemed by the blood of Christ. So death is gone. Hades is gone. It says they were thrown into the lake of fire. Um, In Isaiah 25, 8, it says that God will swallow up death for all time. This is the day. This is the day that death is swallowed up for all time. It ceases to exist. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57, talking about the very end when Christ... Uh, returns and all these things are, are, are finalized in Christ. It says, "But when this perishable will have put uh, on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then we will come about. The, uh, then will come about the saying that is written: Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The answer is they're gone. There is no more sting of death. There is no more victory of death. Death is done." He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, again, like I said, this is awful. This is terrifying. These are some of the hardest verses to read in the Bible. And this is the day that death is swallowed up forever. This is the day that sin ceases to exist forever. This is the day that the new heavens and the new earth are completely prepared for and then they come. I mean, that's the that's the joy of this day. But it's a terrifying, terrifying Day of Judgment. And it says they're tossed into the lake of fire. The lake of fire, it says, this is the second death. So the second death is the lake of fire. Um, And we talked about the lake of fire already when the Antichrist, false prophet, and Satan were tossed in. It's just a quick refresher. Basically, the six things tossed into the lake of fire in Revelation 19 through 20 are the Antichrist first, the false prophet bodily, then Satan at the end of the Millennial Kingdom, now death and Hades, and then finally in this very last verse, every unbeliever that has existed from from Abel, or I mean from from Cain, all the way down to the very last one, uh, all unbelievers tossed into the lake of fire, and this is eternal death, if you want to say it that way it 's the eternal judgment of God, in the same way that hell right now is the, the eternal wrath of God, the fire of God, that, but it 's a holding place for the dead until this day, so they 're already being tormented by the judgment of God they 'll be released to face him and then be judged for all eternity, both bodily and spiritually forever. Um, and uh, this is, at, Robert Thomas talks about the second death as a second and higher, just like a second and higher life exists for the righteous, our eternal life, a second and deeper death awaits the wicked. Which again, I, that was an a, a insightful way to, to describe it, I would never thought about it that way. And he, the last thing he says here, if anyone's name was not found written in that book that we looked at, the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. John MacArthur says, of this whole thing, he says, this passage describes the final sentencing of the lost and is the most serious, sobering, and tragic passage in the entire Bible. After this, there will never again be a trial and God will never again need to act as a judge. The accused, all the unsaved who have ever lived, will be resurrected to experience a trial like no other that has ever been. And there will be an utterly unsympathetic judge and no jury. And there will be no appeal of the sentence he pronounces. The guilty will be punished eternally with no possibility of parole in a prison from which there is no escape. Those who reject God's grace and mercy in this life will inevitably face his justice in the life to come. So that the takeaway is today is the day of repentance. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. The way of salvation is freely given to us. It's already been paid for. On the cross, Christ bore what we deserve to pay on this day. And if you will believe in him, then he will not only redeem you, but give you, give you new life, make you, transform you, like Steve said, make you a new creation to what, that, that you will never stand before the judgment of God, but you will be freely given the eternal riches and blessings of his grace and goodness when we see him as our Lord and our Savior. And that is the whole reason we do any of this. That's why we say Revelation. That's why Shane preaches. That's why we do Adventure Club and Sunday School and everything. Is to say over and over and over and over again. Have you not heard? We, we say the same thing every week in every class in everything we do. You need Christ. We are sinners. This is the end of sinners right here. And the only hope we have is the blood of Jesus Christ. He came and died for us so that we could be spared this and if you believe in him then everything else we're going to talk about in revelation is your future which is wonderful there's a new heavens and a new earth and it is beyond description we have a little glimpse of it and we'll talk about that next week but leave today like i said with the sober reminder of yourself repent of sin just rid yourself of anything that you uh, hindrances and encumbrances and then be a voice to your friends and your family who need to hear this we must tell People, this day is coming. It's set in stone. This isn't, oh, well, that might happen. This, this is coming. It's just a matter of time.